In this lesson, we're going to look at theft. Now, before we move on with the lesson, it's important to note that this can be considered as a seed offense. And what I mean by a seed is that it is related with several other offenses in most LLB syllabuses, such as robbery, burglary, and fraud. Whereas robbery, burglary, as well as theft as a whole relates to appropriation of property, fraud deals with uh, certain misconducts committed in relation to services. So, having considered that, let's move on with the uh, lesson. Now, initially during the introduction, I actually dissected the definition of theft because it's a good example of how the actus reus and the mens rea elements of any offense can be properly segregated. So let's go into that once again. Now the definition of theft is the dishonest appropriation of property belonging to another with the intention of permanently depriving the other of it. It is very clear that the actus reus element of theft can be broken down as the appropriation of property belonging to another. Now what's important to note is in relation to theft, we have both legislation as well as case law that governs it. But primarily, we will be dealing with the Theft Act of 1968. The definition which I explained earlier is found under Section 1 of it, whereas each individual component can be found in Sections 3, 4 and 5 respectively. So let's go into each individual part of the Actus Reus in turn. First of all, there must be a form of appropriation that has taken place. So what exactly is appropriation? Well, this deals with the usurpation of the rights of the owner. Have a look at Morris and you'll understand what this exactly means. The bottom line is, there must be at least one type of right, which is defined as per section 3 of the Theft Act of 1968, that which is a right of the owner, which the purported defendant or the alleged defendant has usurped. So for instance, a theft occurs when you decide to assume those rights of the owner. Now it's worthwhile noting that this need not be the legal owner either. It might be a person in transit as well. What I mean by this is, for example, let's say you're in a supermarket and you dishonestly appropriate uh, an item which is in the cart of another person that other person might not still be the owner of such property until he makes payment, but still a theft could have occurred and it's sufficient appropriation. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are a few features of appropriation that we must consider. Now, as per Morris, it can be any right of the owner. The appropriation need to be the usurpation of whatever right as defined in section three. Moreover, it can be either a loss or a gain and have a look at Wheatley in relation to that. Conversely, it can even be with the consent of the owner, with, of the victim rather. Now for this, have a look at Gomez and Lawrence. All these cases, including Morris and Wheatley, are available in detail in the case summaries. Now that we've considered appropriation, let's have a look at what exactly property is defined as. Now, Section 4.1 of the Theft Act of 1968 defines property as money and all other property, real or personal, including things in action and other intangible property. What is meant by things in action are, for instance, shares, uh, intellectual property, so on and so forth. However, it must be noted that this property has to be something that is acquirable. It must be capable of acquisition. And a good example of this can be seen in Oxford and Moss, where a court decided that information cannot be property. Yet, 
Consider this in turn with uh, things in action, such as shares and intellectual property, which are in themselves intangibles, but have a value accrued to them. Now, it's worthwhile noting that in your second and third years, this concept of property that we are discussing in relation to criminal law in the first year might differ a bit in certain other subjects, for instance, in commercial law, where the notion of property itself is considered in a whole other light, specifically in commercial contexts for practicality purposes, uh, for trade usage, and so on and so forth. Next, we'll move on to the third element of the Arctus Reus, which is the fact that the property must have belonged to another person. This is actually one of the most important elements of the Arctus Reus because it must be noted that you cannot steal what you already own. So it must be a property which is in transit, as in the supermarket example I mentioned earlier, or that which belongs to a complete other person or legal owner. Now, Section 5 of the Theft Act of 1968 elucidates quite clearly how we must consider this in relation to a legal owner or some other individual. Have a look at Turner number 2, where a court suggested that even something you own but not possess at that time might signify that it still belongs to another person. There are instances also, as I mentioned earlier, in relation to property in commercial contexts where there are multiples of owners. And then the question arises at what point or what rights are accrued to certain owners and what rights aren't to others. Conversely, we can also see in Woodman that it was considered that the knowledge of the owner that it is in fact his property is irrelevant. As in, if the defendant comes forth and suggests that he appropriated this property while the victim himself or the complainant had no idea that it was his property in the first place, will not be a significant factor in the court's decision. Now that we have considered the actus reus or the physical element of theft itself, we must move on to the mens rea or the mental component of it. Now, unlike most of the offences, you can consider um, two variants of the mens rea being prevalent in relation to theft, which is dishonesty and the intention to permanently deprive another of his property. So, first of all, Let's look at the more complex of the two, which is dishonesty. Now, how I considered this when I was studying the LLB was to think of it in a two-stage process, which is firstly objective and then subjective. Have a look at section 2 of the Theft Act of 1968, where there is a definition of dishonesty which has been outlined. Now, in this definition, there are three main situations in which court must not infer dishonest to be present. Firstly, if the defendant considers that he has a right in law to deprive the other of that particular property, it is not considered dishonest. Secondly, if the defendant was under the impression that had the other known about this particular appropriation by the defendant, he would have granted consent or permission. And thirdly, where the defendant believed the rightful owner cannot be found or the rightful owner cannot be discovered by taking reasonable steps. In all these three situations, court has inferred by way of the 1968 Act that there cannot be dishonesty upheld in relation to the mens rea component of theft. Now that was the objective part of the dishonesty test. Where a situation does not fall under one of these three conditions, there must be a subjective test as was found in R and Gosh, a case which has been elucidated clearly in your case summaries and I urge you to have a look at. 
In the event both the objective and subjective tests fail, then court can infer that the individual, the defendant, the alleged criminal has in fact dishonestly appropriated the said items, the said property. Moreover, if we consider the secondary aspect of mens rea, according to section 6 of the 1968 Act, the defendant must have also intended to permanently deprive the other of said property. Have a look at Lavender and Aziz, both cases available in your case summaries once again, for a clear understanding of how this particular aspect or this particular secondary component of mens rea affects the crime. That was an overview of theft. In the next lesson, we'll have a look at an extension to this, which is robbery and burglary.